All right, all right. It is time for the Cavus Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles, making transoceanic missions possible. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up. It's been a whirlwind of a week in Washington for the U.S. Navy. Navy budget testimony is in full swing on Capitol Hill. One senator is holding up more than 100 DOD confirmations, and the Naval Academy gets its first female nominee to be superintendent. Plus, SpaceX and rapid unscheduled disassembly. Sam Legrone of USNI News will join us to unwrap it all. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. The Russian fleet on April 14th ordered a general snap deployment with ships getting underway and entering the Sea of Japan, the Sea of Akatsk, and the Bering Sea. Japanese self-defense forces closely monitored the movements and published several reports of ships passing through La Perouse Strait, also known as Soya Strait, between Japan's northern island of Hakido and the Russian island of Sakhalin. At least 18 Russian naval ships were reported passing through the strait on April 20th, including two destroyers, two frigates, and six guided missile corvettes. Destroyer USS Milius carried out a Taiwan Strait passage April 16th through the waterway between mainland China and Taiwan the first such passage since January 5th. Milius also carried out a Freedom of Navigation passage near the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea on April 10th. It was a rough week for Fincantieri Marinette Marine. On April 15th, the shipbuilders christened and launched the last Freedom-class littoral combat ship for Lockheed Martin, the future USS Cleveland LCS-31. As has been the case with dozens of launches at Marinette, the ship was launched sideways into the narrow Menominee River, actually the last sideways launch at the shipyard, which will build a new ship lift to launch Constellation-class frigates for the U.S. Navy and combat ships for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But moments before the Cleveland's launch, the tugboat William C. Gaynor inexplicably moved in too close and under where the Cleveland was to roll in. And when the LCS was launched, The tug tried to get out of the way, but couldn't, causing a dent in the side of the Cleveland. It's still not clear why the tug moved in so close or why Fincantieri's safety team didn't stop the launch. And on April 19th, USNI News broke the story that the shipyard had been the victim of a ransomware attack that began April 12th when, according to USNI News, large chunks of data on the shipyard's network servers were rendered unusable by an unknown professional group. In new ship news, the future USS Kingsville LCS-36 was to be christened April 23rd at Austell, USA in Mobile, Alabama. Kingsville is the next-to-last Independence-class littoral combat ship to be followed only by the Pierre LCS-38. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, well, as everybody just heard, it has been a darned busy week in Washington for the Navy and around the world for the Navy. Um, one of the best uh, out news outlets that's been covering it has been USNI News. With us today is the editor of USNI News, Sam Legrone. Sam, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here. Um, you guys have been covering, uh, probably doing one of, the, one, of, one of the best jobs out there 
of trying to cover everything going on in Washington this week, and it's been a lot. Um, can you kind of bring us up to date on what 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 is this week what? What is this week? So I think probably the biggest story, the biggest DC story, if we're gonna you know start small and then move out, is the real inconsistencies with what exactly it is the Navy and the Pentagon want the Navy and the Marine Corps to do. So um, we want to set the stage with the long range shipbuilding plan that came out uh, this week that doesn't really tell you what's going on, admittedly, because uh, in the uh, introduction that uh, Secretary uh, Carlos del Toro put to all the senators and congressmen that were distributed the long-range shipbuilding plan is the 30-year Navy outlook. They were saying that, well, hey, this thing is going to be valid for, I don't know, two months or so because we have yet another study coming out, a long-range shipbuilding plan, the Battle Force Strategic Assessment, I believe it's what it's called. It's the BIFSAR. Some people are calling it the beefsteak, um, which will lay out the fleet. Battle Force Ship Assessment and Requirement Report. Thank you. BIFSAR. Uh, Bipsar or beef steak, I think, is what they're calling it. Uh, uh, or, in, or as some people call it, this year's report. This year's report. So actually, that's a um, something we're going to be looking at. Is kind of like trying to catalog all of the reports since 2016. But that's a that's a whole nother podcast. But the long range shipbuilding plan really didn't give a sense of where the Navy and the Pentagon want to go. And so, particularly in the Senate hearing um, from this week. Uh, in front of the the full committee, you had what the Navy said they wanted to buy, but then all of these asides, uh, particularly about amphibious shipping, which if you look at the long-range shipbuilding plan, is zeroed out for the LPDs. There's no LPDs in the long-range 30-year shipbuilding plan, which um, the CNO said that they want to use multi-year procurement for new amphibs, but it's not reflected in any of the documentation. So that's confusing. You have some inconsistencies between with what the Pentagon said with their budget rollout was the amphibs that are in the inventory are sufficient, according to uh, Admiral Sarah Joyner on the Joint Staff, versus the Department of the Navy saying there needs to be 31 amphibious ships as opposed to 23 and on and on and on. So it's, it's all very confusing. And, so, and there's a whole wave of decommissionings going on. And there's a wave of decommissionings probably. So when we looked at the long range shipbuilding plan, given that, you know, the second half said right at the jump that this isn't going to be very valid and please give us a year and the 20, the, the fiscal year 25 long range shipbuilding plan will have, have what you need to know there. We had a little tea leaf reading um, from uh, um, the testimony. So, uh, General Berger, um, who is uh, nearing his end of tenure as commandant, may or may not be in contention to be the next uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We'll see. Those rumors are all over the place. Um, may uh, weighed in and said that, hey, there's a bare minimum that we need to meet the requirement that you have set for us, and it's 31 amphibious ships. And I think the, the Navy... And the secretary or the CNO Gilday and uh, Secnav del Toro largely agree with that. However, there is no plan to resource that and there is no path forward. So that's an issue. Set that aside. Then you had, all right, so what are we doing with uh, the frigates, the new small surface combatant that's getting built out in Fincantary Marinette Marine out in Wisconsin? We just, uh, we're going to have a big report coming out on Monday on how that yard is doing and uh, what's going on with that program. And so essentially they were going to do uh, buy 
uh, a, a sawtooth pattern. So two one year, then one a year, then two one year, and then one a year. Now CNO said they need a second yard really fast and they need to be building four a year uh, as soon as possible. Well, that's not reflected in the long range shipbuilding plan. And how, how does that fit into the larger Navy dynamics? So that was another thing that wasn't in any of the written testimony. It wasn't indicated in the long range shipbuilding plan. So now we have the sense that, okay, they want more frigates, uh, but we're not quite sure what the plan is and how that's going to roll out. That was actually an interesting exchange. That that, that, that was just Senator Wicker um, from Mississippi uh, asking questions. And, you know, what's your, what, what's your plan to go to a second yard? And the secretary answered first, Secretary Del Toro, and gave this, gave the, what has been the Navy's, standard response for the, for at least the last year or so or two about pretty a pretty cautious approach about well we're going to see how it's going and we're going to make, make an analysis and then if that analysis is going forward we're going to send it to somebody else we're going to we're going to see how that fits in can we do any funding and if all that is go then possibly we may we might consider a second yard at some point in the unspecified future with no commitment whatsoever to do it and then cno was asked about it. he said well you know we we really need and then the way for Wicker phrased it was, you know, how many how many do you need to build a year? And and CNO said, well, we need four, and we have to get to, you know, two yards as fast as we can, two per year, which was not what the secretary said. Um, and you you had and, and just as he's talked about, you know, there's there's no LPDs. Uh, they, they were asked, you know, is there is there a plan to get to 31? No, there's not, said said Commandant Berger. And um, and then the secretary says, well, you know, we're looking at an MYP and a multi-year procurement for a, a program that at the moment you're not buying any of. That's fairly unique. The, the, I mean, the disconnect here is is on display. I, I agree with you because I think there's a there's a way that the Pentagon sees it and there's a way that the Department of the Navy sees it. And I think the right. one thing that they're trying really hard not to do is to show any kind of sort of dissent or split. Uh, in assembling this kind of joint force that's again being oriented around this high-end fight defense of Taiwan I think is sort of the biggest um, kind of uh, uh, yardstick they're using to, to measure how they're doing their procurement but then again there's these deep 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 divisions and when you don't sort of express and articulate what everybody's points of view are it just becomes this kind of uh, indeterminate mash that you kind of have to sort out through uh, just these statements here and there. And so it gets really difficult to understand sort of what the priorities are. That's probably the the foot stomp of, of the podcast thus far. It, it, it really is hard to understand. Um, I imagine for you as somebody that covers this every day, certainly for us, uh, you, you know, that try to analyze and provide context and, and you hear from Congress really on both sides of the aisle, um, you know, sort of help us help you. And there really isn't a way that the Navy is leaning in. I mean, we, we tend to catch hell for, for being too critical, but it's hard to understand what the Navy's thesis is, right? I mean, hey, China's a threat. We think we can deter them or we, we have to fight them and, you know, kind of track that line down. Um, and every time they change the 30-year shipbuilding plan or the report du jour, that line of, okay, what do I need to achieve what I want to achieve becomes blurrier and blurrier. Sam, have we reached the end of the value of the 30-year plan and the value of these studies? Have they become so politicized that they're of no help to you or industry or the Hill? I think that's a good, I think that's a good question. I think they got really politicized starting in 2016 when 
uh, Ray Mavis put out the um, future, uh, the the force structure assessment for 2016, uh, that was mostly designed to be kind of a, a a thumb in the eye of Pentagon leadership at the time. I mean, that was that was a, that was an inherently political act, and uh, sort of the Trump administration and and I think Republicans in Congress like latched on to to that, and so from there it's been off to the races. I, I think it's less that it's politicized, um, to be fair, and more that it is this dynamic between what the Navy wants and what the uh, what, what, what sort of the larger OSD wants. And uh, oh, there's this, you know, and you can see it as part of the Gallagher Amendment that was put forth um, last year where, hey, let's get a Title 10 definition from the Navy, and that means presence. So there's the cynical folks inside the navy that is like hey we're just the we're we're just the 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 blue part of this sort of nebulous purple joint force um that is under the direction of the combatant commander and our job is to to whoop ass when requested um in this joint force there's no consideration on the OSD level for this presence operation for, you know, maintaining the rules-based international order. Again, this is, this is a cynical Navy perspective that we are, we have become subservient, um, you know, from kind of our core missions to this larger defense of Taiwan idea. And again, I'm not saying that's all that everybody's considering right now, but that's what everybody's considering to be sort of that, that high end, the largest, most difficult threat that you have to, consider and then everything else kind of flows from there um and and i think the other component of this is i think osd wants a more capable lethal navy but they also don't want to pay the money for it and i think that's a that's very much a, a white house consideration i don't think from this uh biden administration you have a really sort of supportive sense for an expanded navy and i think you know everybody uses the layman comparison the john layman comparison for the 600 ship buildup um back in the 80s and so we don't need to repeat that but the big difference between this naval buildup and that naval buildup is there was a very kind of full-throated support from the executive saying we need more ships and we need them now as opposed to the sense that we get from omb at the moment which is just don't spend more than this line it always baffled me when, when I was in uniform and continues to baffle me, you know, 315, 325, 355, 400, you still have to pull back on the stick and, and, and start climbing. Right. So like maybe let's not argue about what exactly that number is and let's just start building in the short term. And then as we get closer, you know, we can figure out what, what that, that number is recognizing things are going to change. It just seems that there's so much churn, so much um, political capital wasted at the service level and on the Hill in talking about things that everyone knows will not come to fruition because 30 years is a lifetime uh, in, in budget cycles. Um, I, I'm more interested in the fit up. I'm more interested in two fit ups. Uh, and, and I feel like we're missing that window. Is, is that a, a cynical view or, um, you know, am I capturing the frustration correctly? I, I, I think I, I think you're right that you want to see what's getting built in the five-year plan, but this year's budget isn't going to tell you that either. Um, so I think what's, you know, to be fair to the Navy, and again, you know, this is relitigating all of the decisions made on force structure for the Navy going back almost five, six years, they were on the five yard line right at the end of the Trump administration with coming up with something that they were going to move forward 
and then um when the Biden administration came in that that all reset and so there was about 18 months a year that was just lost because the Navy had the plan which hasn't really changed that much to be to be fair to Admiral Gilday and and the OPNAV staff and the folks that are kind of crunching on this they've been pretty steady as to these are the numbers that we think we need I mean there's a little there's a little stuff kind of getting tweaked on the margins there but they've been pretty consistent about this is kind of what we need to have and um they've been making that argument over and over and over again and so in the beginning of um like Mark Esper pulled in the Navy's plan, planning into OSD, and then now OSD and CAPE are kind of setting the stage um, for for how all of this stuff is is getting done. And then the Navy's, um, you know, has to share a lot of the, the decision space, the you know, the the analysis with these folks who are a little bit more skeptical. So the Navy doesn't get to make these determinations on their own anymore. And this kind of back and forth and back and forth. And now that Congress is involved. So I think they were very like Esper was convinced right on the way out, right before he was shown the door. Esper was convinced that of the Navy's argument after about a year. And then it reset again. So I mean, it, it's it's tough. It's tough for the Navy. Um, you know, they don't have a RDA right now. Uh, they don't have, um, you know, a they don't have a permanent, permanent Navy acquisition official. No, abs- oh, I'm sorry. Yes. You're uh, the permanent Navy acquisition f- uh, official. One has been nominated, but we're going to, uh, we're going to, we're, we're that's, yeah. hold, okay, hold, hold that thought. Sure. Um, I will, we got to move on, but, but before we do, I, I got to say that I, I, I always respect my, uh, my, uh, podcast partner's opinion. He, he'd, um, He's, he's a lot more dismissive of the 30-year plan than I am. I'm, I'm actually a pretty big fan of it. And it's not just the tables that are in there. It's become almost a, it's, it has become kind of a catch-all document that a lot of explanation about what they're doing and why they're doing and where they see this going. A lot of that is succinctly in here where it's not necessarily gathered in one good place throughout the rest of the budget submission and all the statements. I find it ridiculously useful. I also like to, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good explanation of um, the, the decommissionings, the inactivations, what they have in mind for that, which is really important. That's, that's key to force structure. Uh, you're getting rid of things um, in the face of we need, we need more stuff or we're going to get rid of a lot of stuff. And, you know, divest to invest is, is, a, is a theme that does not play well on the Hill. Um, and you're not, you're certainly not hearing Navy officials put that out as much anymore. But the, uh, you know, and as far as the 30-year plan goes, you've always had this outlook of, you know, so the the future year's defense plan, which is this year and the next five years, is in the budget. It's a Navy thing. It's a DOD thing. It's a Pentagon thing. Too bad. Actually, the Coast Guard does not have that, which is is a problem. We never know where the Coast Guard is going next year. What are your plans? But the, um, I find it very useful to have this 10-year plan. It takes a long, long, long time to build ships. They're not easy. They're, they take forever. Um, they're expensive, and building a ship takes years. So it's you know what what is the plan, Stan? And a ten-year plan is 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 usually pretty good about where 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 we think we're going at the moment. The middle twenty years, well, you know, if this works out, this is this is sort of what what might happen. And the out the outlying decade is 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 notional. Nobody takes it really seriously, but it's, it's sort of like that's our thinking in the long run. Um, it does help people plan. It, there's a reason why it's an annual requirement. It's supposed to change every year. We understand that it's going to change every year. So when the Navy says, oh, we're delaying it because we're still doing another study, we're just going to inform it again. Well, yes, I know it's going to change every year. 
that's why it's an annual requirement. So it's kind of a non-argument to say, well, we're, you know, this could change again. Yes, we know. But anyway, um, let's, let's uh, move on a little bit. Um, one thing that caught my mind, um, caught my eye in the uh, Senate hearing was Tommy Tuberville, the football coach who got himself elected a senator from Alabama. Um, there's a concern about team. And he went after in the, in his, in the war on wokeness, um, a young junior officer on the U.S. on the USS Gerald R. Ford carrier, who um, read a poem on the, on to the crew on LGBTQ LGBTQ Day, um, and the CNO, the CNO's response I thought to that was really admirable. And then uh, you know the question was, have you seen this? And CNO said, CNO Gilday said, you know, let, let me tell you why I'm proud of this sailor. And he completely stood up for her. And I thought that was really, really admirable. Um, good for him. Um, it was just a moment. And Senator Tuberville, uh, Sam, tell us a bit about this. So I believe he's, uh, he's holding up a whole mess of nominations, speaking of, of the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research Development and Acquisition. Um, there are holes being placed on something over, well over a hundred nominations right now. Yeah, more than a hundred uh, civilian and department of uh, civilian and military department of defense nominations are on hold for consideration under Congress by uh, Senator Tuberville over the policies that the Pentagon put up um, within the following the Dobbs decision. Um, to allow states to put their individual restrictions on abortions. Um, so for reproductive health, the US military is allowing service members to travel out of state on leave, um, you know, to get care that they need, including abortions. And that is uh, uh, Senator Tuberville's issue. And then based on that, he has held up sort of the nominations. And it's part of this kind of, he has a, um, that this this call on you know wokeness in the military uh, and how that uh, is detracting away from from the uh, fighting prowess of of the U.S. Um, and I think uh, pretty much universally the all of the members of the Joint Chiefs have been pretty protective of of soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines. Um, and the Coast Guard and saying that like, it's not, this isn't what you think it is. This isn't, you know, we're not trying to politicize the military. There is a certain level of diversity and inclusion training that we're, we're doing. Um, you know, it's a big military and you're not always just sharpening knives. There's other things that you do. Uh, so I think, and, and that was CNO's point was, um, he brought up the anecdote that, uh, that, uh, that J.O., uh, her grandfather was in the Navy and was ostracized for being gay. And uh, he was, he was proud that she was able to sort of carry on that, that tradition um, of uh, a more inclusive um, Navy that, that more people could join. And so, and that was kind of his position. And, and this has been kind of, uh, you know, an irregular talking point from uh, sections of the Republican party that say, um, Again, if you look at the Chinese, uh, the Chinese aren't doing diversity and inclusion. The Chinese aren't doing this, and um, 
the Russians aren't doing this diversity and inclusion. And then I think the argument back uh, from members of the military are like, well, you know, uh, you know, the Russians are getting their clocks cleaned uh, by women in Ukraine. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's kind of this like touchy sort of, you know, once you engage in this conversation, there's kind of like no winner, no winners. It's, it's just sort of nobody's minds are being changed here. A lot of this politicization is, um, I think, playing especially to the base in Alabama. Yeah, it's a, it, to me, it's an argument that is um, misdirected on all, all sides. I mean, it, it, uh, it, you know, as somebody that just recently retired, I, I don't think it's wokeness. I, I mean, our folks have a lot on their plate across all things. Um, they, we have a time problem. Um, and instead of sort of cherry picking this item or that item, let's look at what's on their plate. Um, and, and, you know, anytime you pick on a particular service member, um, it, that, that's just a loser. I, I mean, it really is a loser and, and it's poor form. Um, I, I agree with Chris. I, I was really proud of the CNO's response. Um, I mean, shit, if you would have asked me what my favorite thing about deployment was when I was a Lieutenant JG, it, it probably would be very different than what it is now, right? I mean, your, your views tend, tend to change. So to pick on this person for their particular view as to what, you, you know, in the moment they thought was a great thing and then to draw sweeping conclusions, we're, we're missing the boat here, uh, no, no pun intended, uh, on, uh, up on the hill. So I, I hope Tuberville get, gets his, his nose back in joint because holding up these um, both civilian and military appointments um, or nominations, excuse me, I mean, I don't think people realize the um, chaos. The chaos, that's a great word, chaos. the chaos that it, I mean, we just- this is figured things out post, um, you, you know, post GDMA and got things back on track. And now, you you know, people miss their windows. And so the real life repercussions of this is not just that you don't have a acquisition official there when you're trying to grow the Navy, but people's careers are, um, are, are altered. You lose good talent because they can't go to the next job that they need to go on to, you know, hopefully where you want them to be. So th this is not the way to go after this issue. No, it, it, it really isn't. I, I mean, I, I think it's shameful, uh, you know, the, the whole ability of the Senate of the Senator to be able to put these holds on is something that Congress will never revisit because they love it. Uh, they love it because it's anonymous. They don't have to admit they're doing it, which is shameful. And when you start applying it, it's, it's one thing to have concerns about one or three people. It's another to just blanketly put stuff out there as a policy. You know what? Seriously, whoever does that, screw you that's my fault that, that's my statement i got moving you. on uh, well just just to put a pin in that as a as a fax guy i uh i neither uh reflect or uh will publicly share the opinions of my uh my, <laughs> well, the other people on the on the call here just just trying to put the facts out there um so you know was asked about it directly by jack reed who nice. senator jack reed um and he who has been asking pretty much everybody about it do these nominations Hold them up without naming Senator Tuberville, and uh, CNO said that they're managing now. But if it extends past ninety days, they're going to have some real problems. Yeah. Okay, moving on um, quickly. SpaceX, the rapid unscheduled disassembly of their launch on October twentieth. Um, what struck me about this was not. Um, I mean, is this the, this is the world's largest rocket? A whole new level of of um, 
ability here to, to, to put things into space. Um, SpaceX is playing this as a, as a major success. It was a major success, part of it, but it also blew up um, several minutes into the flight and that was not part of the schedule. Um, a lot of things seem to have gone wrong with it. I think more is gonna come out in the next few days. Um, this is early days. But what really kind of bothered me about it was not, um, was this, did this inability of the SpaceX people who put on the, 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 the video showing the launch and of course commenting about it, to just acknowledge what just happened. Um, it wasn't supposed to go that way. And they kept dialing back and putting spin, 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 spin on a really super, super impressive level. Um, it's, it's not the world's biggest disaster. It, everybody knows that with new engineering, it is risky. It is rocket science. There's a reason why that's a cliche and it still is. Um, it's not easy. And this was a whole new level, but, um, it, it really kind of bothered me that everybody kept cheering and do you know what you're looking at? Do you know what it's, it's, um, uh, it, it's a, it's a problem for me anyway, when I, when I'm watching this, I'm wondering how, how it struck you guys. And this is not just oh, you know, young people, SpaceX, Elon Musk, uh, the government, the military, more and more in NASA are depending upon private enterprise to develop these vehicles. And this is, this is how we collectively are moving forward. So yeah, SpaceX from Elon Musk and Blue Origin from Jeff Bezos. Um, you just kind of, I don't know. Uh, this this is important. It does uh, does get into the national defense realm. This is how we're going to put a lot of satellites and um, a lot of other systems up in space. Um, did this did this strike you guys as anything, or just a, just another day in the in the development of a of a new system? Uh, just two things that kind of kind of leap to mind right now. Um, one is when you talk about sort of the ballistic missile testing that uh, the DOD does and uh, the missile defense agency does, you know, when you're trying to hit a bullet with another bullet, um, the, they talk a lot about um, when a interceptor fails to hit its target about the lessons learned and like, okay, please don't call it a failure because we're learning an awful lot about this, which I think is necessarily true. And then we never hear about those tests again. And we're kind of left to guess about like what the efficacy is of that system. Um, I, I think that's, I think that's something that's really interesting. I mean, and uh, you know, if we're going to go back to even the recent last 40, 50 years of the uh, space program, you know, a lot of that stuff, what the, space shuttle the prime contractor on that was lockheed martin if i if i remember correctly um the lockheed martin uh, a private company is building the orion space capsule i mean granted under government rfis and stuff like that uh i think spacex and blue origin are really interesting because it looks at you know other ways to get at the problem there there is not like a single monolithic solution and so i think that's i think that's cool that at least there's some other ideas out there and sort of like the set to that realm if uh, there's any sort of speculative fiction uh fans out there for all mankind the uh alternative history of what if the russians won the space race and the uh repercussions from that their most recent season had a three-way competition to Mars between the Soviets, 
uh, the Americans and the uh, private industry all kind of trying to race to go and make that one. And what really struck me on on that particular uh, uh, season of television was of the three different methods that everybody decided to go after to go uh, and solve a particular problem. That part, I think, is really cool. And I think it is really interesting. So for what it's worth. Yeah, I'll, I'll piggyback. And what, what struck me, Chris, was I was caught by just the difference of um, culture, you know, with a company like SpaceX, with um, what I was used to when you encountered adversity in the Pentagon um, and, you know, sort of anecdotal tellings of what other parts of the industry, like in Silicon Valley and how they view um, adversity and, you know, you know, failing forward and, and that idea. So I, I, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I'm not sure that if I was a part of a team that was building a rocket and it exploded, I would feel compelled to cheer. Um, but I certainly would recognize the value of everything that they learned and we learned, um, you know, so I would love to see them be a little bit more disappointed. And I would love to see the folks in the Pentagon be a little, you know, uh, less disappointed on things that fail and maybe sort of meet in the middle. That, that was my initial thoughts as we, excuse me, as we take the next step in, you know, innovation and, and you know, whether it's for space or, or other uh, technology, um, it, it would be nice to sort of get on a similar page. Um, before we go, um, right before we, we sat down to record this, the Navy made an announcement about uh, the next Academy superintendent. Chris, uh, tell us about that, can you? Right before we came on the news, Sam and his team broke the story that um, Rear Admiral Yvette Davids had been nominated as the next Naval Academy superintendent. I'm reading the headline from uh, from Sam's page. Um, I I've been lucky enough to know uh, Admiral Davids since she was a lieutenant. I know her husband, Keith, who was a three-star and the, the head of the Navy SEALs out in San Diego. Um, as a Naval Academy grad and as a Navy retiree, this is an amazing choice. She's going to do a great job. Um, you know, we've been we were lucky to have Sean Buck for three years, but uh, Yvette brings a, uh, I mean, just a wealth of experience, both military and life experience to this job. She's going to be a role model to, uh, you know, graduates, mids, you you name it. So, uh, you know, every now and again, the Navy hits a home run on these choices, and, and this uh, indeed was one of them. All right, well, folks, that is it. That's a long discussion today. Sam, this is all, you know, it's always great to have you here. You, you're, you're full of insight. You guys work your butt off. Um, you, you cover so much stuff. Um, really, thanks for coming on. This has been great insight. Thanks for having. It's always a blast to be out here. All right. Our guest has been Sam Legrone, the editor of USNI News. And, um, thanks for being here. Well, that does it for this week. The Caver Ships podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. As always, our thanks go out to Bagamaradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.